Well, church, uh, we are going to continue in our series that we've been calling Wild with Grace. And we have done our best um, through the different transitions and challenges to present to you the radical grace of Jesus Christ. We've looked at so many different examples of, of people that have been shown radical grace who there's no way in the world deserve what God has shown them in Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to look at um, kind of where the rubber meets the road and, and the cost of this grace, because there is a tremendous cost. In the five years that I've been preaching here at New City and we've started this church, We've never really walked play by play through the crucifixion of Jesus. And I think it is so significant and crucial that we do so this morning. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to open up to Luke 23. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. But if, if, we're, if we don't know what the cost of following Jesus is, the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate next Sunday, we call Easter, it will be nothing more than colored eggs and Easter bunnies to us. Today we're going to sink deep into the cost of what Jesus has done so that the resurrection of Jesus can be all the more beautiful for us as his people. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is really an outline for us as we think about, as we think about Holy Week and what it means. Paul said this to the church in Corinth. He said, for I deliver to you as of first importance, meaning this, I deliver to you the main thing. This is the main thing about the Christian life, he says. And that's what he received, and it was this, that Christ died for our sins. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he actually really died and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the main thing this morning. This is the briefest description of what the good news of Jesus Christ or the gospel is, that Christ died, that he was buried, and that Christ was raised. And because of this, <clears throat> there is nothing more important in your life, and this is our big idea today, there is nothing more important in your life than knowing who Jesus is and why he died. Let me say that one more time. There is nothing more important in your life today, pandemic and all, than knowing who Jesus Christ is and why he died. So now that you've got your Bible open to Luke chapter 23, I want to set the context up of what is happening as Dr. Luke writes this narrative of Jesus' last days on this earth before he encountered the cross. And I'm going to handle it a little bit differently today. I want to walk a little bit more slowly and methodically through the text and observe its twists and its turns and its characters and observations as we look at this. And then at the end of the sermon, after we walk through it, I'm going to draw out three theological conclusions for us to consider about what we have looked at today. So, uh, so here's what was kind of happening uh, in Luke chapter 23. Um, <clears throat> On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had just celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples. He told them that, that, that the lamb this year wouldn't be an animal, but that he would be the lamb, the sacrificial lamb given for their forgiveness. He experienced the Last Supper with his disciples. He even served the Last Supper to Judas, who would betray him moments later. 
later. He served it to Peter, who would betray him the same night. And then he took his disciples and they left that upper room. They began to walk through the city of Jerusalem. They really, Jesus really wanted to take his disciples to his favorite prayer spot, which was just across the Kidron Valley, to the west of the city, outside of the city gates, across the Kidron Valley, over to his favorite prayer spot at the base of the Mount of Olives, which was called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, as Jesus would have taken his disciples through the busy streets of Jerusalem and, and gone through a gate outside of the city, they would, have, they would have passed the temple. Now, what was happening at the temple during the Passover? There were, be, there were sacrifices being offered. As many as would ever be offered in a year were happening at this time. All of that blood that was sacrificed, it had to go somewhere. And so where it would go is it would pour out from the temple, outside of the, the, the city gates, down into the Kidron Valley. And, and uh, scholars say that the valley looked black because of all of the blood stains. But, but the blood was flowing during the Passover feast. So I want you to picture it. Jesus and his disciples walk out of the upper room, past the, the temple, outside of the city gates, across the Kidron Valley, over to Jesus' favorite prayer spot with blood flowing. Jesus' disciples' feet and his feet would have blood on them as they walked across the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane. A picture of what would happen just a day later. And he got to the garden, which was his favorite prayer spot. And he prayed and he asked his disciples one thing. He said, can you just please stay awake with me and pray with me, contend with me. But you know the story. His disciples couldn't stay awake. They were overcome with sleep. They were too weak. And so Jesus was left to fend for himself in prayer as he fought with his father and, and begged his father, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let us go that way. But he said, not my will be done, but yours. And so his disciples were sleeping. Jesus is pleading with his father. And uh, one of his disciples Judas had left the Passover feast that they were having in the upper room. And Jesus knew it was coming. His name, Judas Iscariot. And as Jesus was praying, disciples were sleeping, Judas shows up with a mob of people, high-ranking officials, Jewish officials. And, you know, Ju Judas was always money-hungry anyway. He was the treasurer for Jesus' disciples. And, and what had happened was he had exchanged the whereabouts of Jesus and the plan of Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver from these Jewish officials. And 30 pieces of silver might seem like a lot to us. It might seem like a lot. But even in that day, I mean, it was a couple hundred bucks. It wasn't even about... The money. That's what Jesus meant to Judas. The mob led by Judas led Jesus out of the garden, and Peter tries to defend Judas, or Jesus and slices off a, the ear of someone. Jesus heals him. Jesus, all, the thing you're going to notice is Jesus is always, even when he's going to the cross, he's always concerned about other people. He's always concerned, and so they would lead him out of the garden and they would lead him on a series of four trials that lasted all night long before Jesus would ultimately go to the cross at nine o'clock the next morning. So this was a long night. The first trial was with Caiaphas. 
the Jewish high priest, and then it was with Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem. Now, you see, Pilate really wanted uh, to let Jesus off the hook. Caiaphas really wanted Jesus to die, but, but Jewish officials couldn't put anyone to death, and so he had to, he had to kick it up the ladder to the Roman officials of the city. Well, Pilate doesn't see any reason that Jesus should die, so he kicks it over to the um, he kicks it over to Herod, who is in town because of the, the Passover feast, who is the, basically the governor of uh, the region of Galilee, where Jesus is actually from, from Nazareth, the region of Galilee. And, um, and, and anyway, uh, basically it comes back to Pilate because Herod's like, hey, there's no reason for him to die. And so, um, and so basically Jesus is then given back to Pilate. Pilate then abdicates his relationship and his leadership to the crowd. The crowd says, give us Barabbas, this criminal, this murderer, give us him, and crucify Jesus. And so at that point, Jesus was taken into further custody, and he was scourged, mocked, and beaten before he ever got to the cross. They stripped him naked, they dressed him in a purple robe, and they twisted a crown of thorns, and they smashed it on his head. And then they blindfolded him, as Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 65 tell us. They blindfolded him as they beat him and mocked him, saying, prophesy, which one of us is hitting you? Now, I want to share a little bit. This is a little bit graphic. This is why we sent the warning out to parents. I want to share a little bit about what actually happened, because if not, you'll take this kind of fairy tale approach that it was all beautiful. But the reality is, is that Jesus, you could barely tell who Jesus was by the time he got to the cross, and he should have died before he got there. Now, here's what happened. Most people did not survive the scourging that Jesus took. In fact, this is why it only took Jesus six hours to die on the cross. Historians tell us that some people that were crucified lived up to nine days. But for Jesus, only six hours. And why? because he was nearly dead by the time that he got to the cross. Now, the way that they would, they would scourge them is, is they, would, they would tie your hands to a post. And then soldiers or people that were beating you would take this whip. And they would take turns with the whip because they were tired because they were beating you so much. And this whip had leather tassels that were attached to it. Historians call it the, the cat of nine tails. And in the leather tassels were, were tied pieces of ball that were either made of stone or steel or metal. And, and at the end of it would be tied pieces of rock and bone and hooks. And as they beat you, it would hit you, it would wrap around your body, and they would rip it off of you. And they would do this over and over and over again. Jesus endured all of this before he ever got to the cross. This is why Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 says this, As many were astonished at you, his appearance, this is prophesying about Jesus, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. But, verse 5, he was pierced for your transgressions, our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, you are healed. Church, his image was absolutely destroyed so that your image could be restored. He was destroyed so that your image could be restored. Even though the image of God is so broken in us because of sin, we hardly reflect our maker. Jesus was destroyed so that we could be made whole again. You know that Jesus had to be recalling Isaiah, written hundreds of years before this would happen, as he was being beaten. Not giving him confidence that what he was doing was not in vain, that it wasn't for nothing. That the wrath of God was being given through men was one step closer to to all of those that would believe in him experiencing the healing balm of grace and forgiveness. So then Jesus, his clothes are put back on him, and he starts down the, the road from the governor's palace where he'd been beaten. And it's this road that goes through Jerusalem, that goes from, from the, the palace where he was beaten all the way outside of the city gates. I think it's north of the city where this place called Golgotha or the place of the skull is, is where they would sacrifice people. They, they would murder people on the cross. It's the place that it would happen. It's called the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross if you go to Jerusalem. I've, I've had the opportunity to walk down it before. It's about a half mile long. So what they would do is at, at, at Golgotha where uh, they would crucify people, there were these posts that were placed in the ground. They stayed there all the time. That post, that beam... Is the, is the vertical beam of the cross. It's called a stipe. So those posts would remain there. And the, the other part of the cross is called a patibulum. And that's the, that's the horizontal beam. So what they ordered Jesus to do was to carry the patibulum from where he was scourged, nearly put to death, all the way to Golgotha, outside of the city gates where he would be crucified. You had to carry your own cross. And this wasn't, this wasn't a new cross. This is one that people had been crucified on before, likely. Blood, sweat, tears, human remains on this cross, on this patibulum, this beam that would have weighed over a hundred pounds. And Jesus would carry it. And so this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 26 and continue to walk our way through this account. And as they led him away, Jesus, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So Simon of Cyrene, who is this character? Well, Simon would have been coming in from out of the country. Simon uh, was from modern-day Libya, which is North Africa, which would have been about 780 miles away. We know this from Mark chapter 15, verses 21, that he also had a couple of sons that were with him, Rufus and Alexander. And so they were coming into town for the Passover feast. They're getting into town. They haven't even settled yet. And they hear this noisy mob. And it's the mob that's following Jesus as he's carrying the patibulum, the crossbeam of the cross, from the Roman governor's palace to Golgotha, to the place of the skull where he'll be executed. He's carrying it, and he can't carry it because he's nearly dead. And so what they do is they, they seize Simon, and they say, Simon, you've got to carry the cross for him. And Jesus is barely walking himself 
to the place where he'll be crucified. And Simon is behind him carrying the cross. It reminds me of Luke chapter 9, 23, where Jesus tells his disciples, if any of you wants to follow me and be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. This was an image that had to be in Simon's mind later because I think Simon became a follower of Jesus that day. Not only literally as he carried his cross, but also spiritually. And do you know how I know that? Well, in the book of Romans, it's the 15th chapter, verse 13, the scriptures indicate that there's this character named Rufus that is a follower of Jesus in the church at Rome. And when Paul is writing that letter and all of those random names that you see that he's greeting, he says, and to Rufus and his mother. His mother has been like a mother to me. See, that day I believe that Simon became a follower of Jesus. And I believe that his children begin to follow Jesus too and his wife begin to follow Jesus because that's what happened when you see who Jesus is. Church, I just have a question for you as we get into this. Who are you actually following? Who are you actually shaping your children to follow? Is it some kind of American idea of Christianity? Or is it the real Jesus? The one that was on the cross for you? Who are you following? Simon followed Jesus that day. Rufus, probably Alexander, followed Jesus that day. His wife followed Jesus that day. What are you leading your family and friends to? We pick up in verse 27. There's this mob of people following Jesus, right? This half mile out of the city. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Jesus is noticing the people who are following him as he's barely walking his way there. Notice that. But Jesus turns to them just like he has continued to do. He's noticed the other people who are experiencing what's happening to him. And he said this, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore in the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green or alive and fresh, what will they do when it's dry? So the marred face of Jesus is barely making his way down the Via Dolorosa through the streets of Jerusalem so that he can go to the place that he's executed. And he's noticing those that are grieving. Because you know, his heart is always drawn to those that grieve. Have you ever noticed how Jesus can pick somebody out of a crowd whose heart is grieving? And they're not like the Jewish high-ranking officials in the Romans that are celebrating the death of Jesus this day. No, no, no. They are grieving the death of Jesus. He turns to them and he basically says this, don't weep for me. You need to be weeping for these people around you. And, and here's what he means by this. The only thing that is worse than Jesus suffering is what these people will suffer if they don't belong to me. That's the, that's the thing that's worse. You know, don't weep for me. Don't have a, a sorry heart for me because I'm accomplishing something for you. But weep for those who will reject me. That's what Jesus is saying to these women. That those that were around rejected him when they should have received him. Jesus is saying, weep for those that reject me. 
Who in your life is Jesus talking about right now? Who in your life has rejected Jesus? Because as the, the Scriptures show, and you'll even see in the two criminals that we're about to look at, if you're not for Jesus, you don't receive Him, then you're against Him. There is no indifference to Jesus. There is no space to be a spectator of Jesus, a fan of Jesus. You're either for Him or you're against Him. You either reject Him or you receive Him. This is what Jesus is saying to these women that are grieving, that, that weeping for Jesus is of no use if we're not weeping over our own sin and the lost souls that have rejected Jesus. You see, a lot of times we get sentimental around Easter. We get sentimental around Good Friday. And it does no use to us if we're not first grieving over our own sin that has separated us from God. Because someone that grieves over their sin is someone who wants to be forgiven and wants to receive Jesus. So we keep going and we notice there's some more characters that Dr. Luke points out in this encounter. Two others, verse 32, Luke 23, 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they, they made the half mile journey. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one was on his right, one was on his left. Jesus was in the middle. Jesus said to them, that the, the people that were there that were crucifying him, here's what Jesus said to them, it's the same thing he continues to do, to look for others that are around him, not himself, not, he's not playing the victim mentality. He looks out to them and he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then after they stripped him, they cast lots, so they basically gambled to divide his garments. Self-interested, looking to gain off of Jesus' garments is a mockery. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Because there was an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. So Jesus arrives at Golgotha. He's greeted by Roman soldiers who want to take the patibula from Simon. And that's a picture for us. Jesus takes our cross for us. Simon goes back to the crowd with Rufus and Alexander and his wife, and they're there. But the soldiers take the patibulum, the cross beam, and they begin to attach it to Jesus. No, that's not right. They begin to nail Jesus to it. And they also want to attach this little sign on top of the patibulum that Pilate had made for him that says this, the king of the Jews. And we just kind of as a sidebar, the chief priest didn't like the sign, right? You read this in John chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. They go back to Pilate. They're like, Pilate, this sign is wrong. It's supposed to say, this man thinks he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, no, leave it. The king of the Jews. You know, Pilate in his conscience knew what he was doing to Jesus that day. He just didn't have the courage, he didn't have the faith to do what was right. But we're thankful because we're forgiven because of it. And the soldiers proceeded to nail large nails. I want you to think of railroad ties through Jesus' hand. 
on the stipe that begin to nail them through his flesh onto that patibulum. And then they set it on the crossbeam, and there would have been this little footstool on the stipe, the vertical part, where they, Jesus would have rested his feet and they would have sunk him down on it. And then they would contort his body sideways like this so that they could get one nail through his legs onto the cross, making it even more unbearable to breathe, making every single second a struggle just to find air. Notice what Jesus says while all this is happening. He cannot keep his heart away from those that are killing him. That's the grace of Jesus. This is the radical grace. How wild Jesus was with grace. He says this, Father, please forgive them for they know not what they do. He says this about his murderers. But it's not like he's testifying in court and showing grace to a murderer. He's the actual victim who's being murdered. He wants them to know that his forgiveness can stretch to them even as they are murdering him. And as a side note, I would say that it even does that. We see that one of the Roman soldiers, after Jesus is crucified, declares that he's Lord, that this man was innocent. Jesus is saving people even as he's dying. We pick up the story about the criminals here and we learn a little bit more about them. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So this is guy on one side. The guy on the other side says this, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to to you, today you will be with me in paradise. These two criminals, they just had very different responses to Jesus. The two two thieves represent the only two ways to, to, to go about interacting with Jesus. Either you receive or you reject. And uh, there's no middle ground. And, and, and the question for us is this, is the same as them. What will you do with a perfect, perfect, sinless man who is God, who was thinking of your soul when he was being murdered because of your sin? What are you going to do with that? Because everybody on the face of the planet has to do something with that man. You can't be indifferent. Either you receive or you reject Does that move your affections as you hear about what Jesus is doing for you? Or is your heart, is it just more hardened at the prospect of you needing anyone else to live your life? How do you respond to that claim? Criminal one, you're the Christ, the anointed one, save us, hero. Just making a mockery out of Jesus. Criminal number two basically says, are you crazy? You have no fear of God for your soul. Jesus is in the middle of the conversation as they're engaging on the cross. Everyone would have heard what they had to say. And then Jesus utters the most beautiful words to this man. He says, when he, when he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus says, hey, I'll do more than remember. I'll do more than remember you. I'll do more than just give you some well wishes in your suffering and in your pain because of your guilt. No, friend, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in eternity. Today you will be with me in my Father's house. Today you will be with me, he says, 
will experience union today. And there are two deathbed confessions that are made here. One is cold and heartless. And the other is soft and warm toward Jesus. We learn two very powerful truths about the thief on the cross that I just want to share with you quickly. The first one is this. It's never too late to follow Jesus. If you've got breath in your lungs, if you've got a heart that's beating, it's not too late to follow Jesus. Who in your life needs to hear that today, that it's not too late to follow Jesus? It's, it's, it's never too late as long as you've got life in your body. It's never too late to follow Jesus. The second thing is this. There's nothing you can do that Jesus cannot forgive. Jesus is being murdered between two men on death row. Their death was planned. I mean, it, they were supposed to be crucified because of their criminal activity. That The world was supposed to see how powerful Rome was because they crucified criminals. And this is a pretty common practice in the day. It was a power play by Rome. Oh, you want to go against Rome? Well, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be crucified and everybody's going to see it. Some of us don't let Jesus love us enough to forgive us. I've had multiple conversations with people recently who said, man, if you just knew my life, there's, 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 if God knows my life, there's no way he would offer forgiveness to me. That's a lie. You know what happens when we have that type of mentality that we think our sin is stronger than his grace? Is we've actually put the hat of God on ourselves and we've said, you know what? I know how grace should be applied better than God, the one who gave it to me. How foolish is that to do that? Some of us think that this sounds like cheap, hypocritical grace for weak Christians. If we were real Christians, you know, we would just live better lives. We just live more holy lives. But Christianity is so incredibly difficult because it's so hard for us to have a heart that's humble enough to repent and seek forgiveness. We're so proud. That's the hardest thing about following God is our pride. It's never too late to follow Jesus and there's no sin that's too great except the sin of unbelief. He goes on to say in verse 44, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light had faded. So Jesus is hoisted up on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. He's been up all night being tried, being beaten. And he's on the cross. So at about noon, what begins to happen is that it goes dark in the middle of the day, okay? That's where we're picking up right here. And the sun's light had faded, verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn into. Then Jesus calling out in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. This man was converted when Jesus died. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed, women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. You see these different responses. You see this just triumphant pride of the people that wanted Jesus dead. You see this Roman soldier who's 
praising God because he knows that something significant just happened, something eternal just happened. And you see the women, the, those that are closest to Jesus, who followed him, provided for his ministry, loved him well. His mom is there as well. And uh, they're grieving. So for the last three hours, Jerusalem goes nearly dark during the middle of the day. And then the, the temple of the curtain is torn. The temple curtain separated the, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Now the Holy of Holies was the place where God resided, where the high priest would go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement and make, a, make a, an offering for all of God's people. And he had, to be, he had to be sinless when he walked in. They tied a rope around his ankle because if he had sin, he was going to die in God's presence. And, and so that curtain was torn down the middle, the book of Hebrews tells us. And the reason that it was torn... The reason it was torn because there is no longer any separation for those who follow Jesus and their relationship with God. Church, we are before the face of God at all times now. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and raised. There's no longer any distance. The only distance is unbelief. If we have faith, we're before the face of God. Friends, and so you see and believe that we are the sleeping disciples. We are Judas Iscariot who have sold Jesus out. We are Peter who betrayed him and denied him. That's us. And so you see that. And so you really believe that that's you and not those people out there. You'll not experience all that God has for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I just want to share three theological principles to help our souls as we comprehend and try to absorb what happened on the cross. Why did Jesus do this? Number one, because we deserve to die because we're sinful. That's why He did it. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, here's the deal. Everyone gets a cross. Everyone on the face of the planet gets a cross. Everyone gets death. Now, either we take up Jesus' cross like Simon of Cyrene did spiritually, we follow Him, we trust in Him, and He does all the heavy lifting to redeem us, or we will bow our knee at judgment and the full weight of the Father's wrath against sin will be poured out on you. Those are the two options. Either you receive Jesus or you reject him and you get the full weight, you get the cross of death on your own life. Now, if we're not here in our theology, we don't think that God pours out his wrath and judgment against sinners. We're just living in a fairy tale Hollywood movie. If you think that somehow you can reject Jesus your entire life, and then at the end, Get away scot-free. You are living in a fairy tale. And I say this because I love you so much. I want you to know how much Jesus has done for you. Either way, Jesus takes your cross or you take the cross. Second thing is this. Someone has to die if anyone is to be forgiven. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no sweeping sins under the rug. Without the shedding of blood, without life being lost, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Forgiveness comes through a substitutionary sacrifice for Christians. In the Old Testament, the entire sacrificial system that you'll read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places was set up to show us what would be necessary to be made right with God, which is not found in our morality or ability to keep it together and be good boys and girls, but it's really in God's provision of forgiveness. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was to point us to the one who would shed better blood, eternal blood for us, to connect us in relationship with God forever through faith. So someone has to die. And it's his blood that speaks a better word for us. And lastly, I just want to share this. Jesus has died in our place because the Father loves you. He loves us. John 3.16 tells us what the motivating factor of Jesus' death is. For God, our Father, so loved the world that His heart was so drawn to His creation that He gave His only Son because blood had to be shed because sin had entered the world and sin deserved death. That the only way was that a perfect blood were to be shed. And that whoever believes in Him, John 3.16 says, you won't perish, you won't get the cross. He said, you'll have eternal life. The Father loves you. Jesus was thinking about you on the cross because his Father was thinking about you. Your sin is no match for God's love. That's not to diminish the power of sin, but to show you all the more the demonstrative power of God's love for his people. Romans 5, 8, and 11 tells us what Jesus was doing. God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, or let me say it a different way, while we were still sinning, while we were still in the act of sinning, we were still murdering others, stealing from others, we were still doing all of those things. While it was happening, Jesus was dying. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, notice, not animal's blood, not our blood, not our cross, but his, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God that's to be poured out? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled or brought back into relationship, shall we be saved by his life? More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So while we were still sinning and lying and stealing and lusting and cursing one another, Christ was dying for us. And he knew it all. He knew it all before we committed it. And he and his father in eternity past made a deal. And it was this, that you are worth the cost of forgiveness. That you're worth it. So why would we not run to a father like that? Jesus' blood is pure and it speaks for our lives now. 2 Corinthians 5.21, just close with this, says this, for our sake, because he loved us, because you were worth it to him, because you were his, for our sake, on your behalf, he made him, so God made Jesus, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. So Jesus has become sin and everything that sin entails, death, so that we could receive life. And now Colossians 3.3 says, for you have died and your lives are now hidden with Christ and God. This is the best news I can ever tell you. 
This is why Jesus died. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You that I do not deserve Your forgiveness. We do not deserve Your forgiveness. But Father, we are now hidden through faith that the sin that we cannot forget, God cannot remember because we are hidden safe within the ark of Jesus' sacrifice and love for us. This is why the cross is so important to us, Lord. The cross is so important because it is the source of salvation for us. It's why the early church chose the image of a cross. They'd be people of the cross, living the way of the cross to be identified by. Lord, may we be people of the cross to know the horror and the pain of sin so that we can all the more gladly rejoice in the depth of the Father's riches and love for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.